Chat with Finance Malta is the podcast series that gives you short, thoughtful and regular insights from leading experts of the financial services industry. I'm Vanessa MacDonald. Welcome. Christophe, I had first interviewed you when you were still uh, in Fusion Solutions. Yes. Um, Quite a few years ago, I have to say. It's uh, quite daunting. And now here you are as Acubex, uh, which is a Mitzi organization company. Explain to me a little bit about what you do, because although obviously I've been following your journey, maybe other people haven't. Yes, um, no, back when we were in Fusion, we had started as an IT consultancy firm. We, had, we were doing quite different number of projects, including custom solutions, different products. Um, however, um, when we launched KYC Portal after we met <laughs> um, under Infusion, KYC Portal took over the whole business. Um, it's, it's a product that focuses on streamlining or rather automating the back office of any due diligence process. So, uh, automating risk assessment, um, a tool that helps in reducing risk exposure and reducing the cost of maintaining such risk. Nowadays, the company is fully focused on selling that and professional services relating to that product. Since we first met, KYC itself and the whole compliance issue has mushroomed quite a lot, hasn't it? Yes, yes. Um, for many reasons. Um, uh, regulations, market happenings, internal policy. Um, yes, it, it changed quite drastically. And in fact, um, even as a, us as a company had to learn with the market, listening from our clients, advice and um, um, listening to what they want to um, add, enhance, change um, to address uh, the constant uh, market changes. They are still happening. Um, regulations are constantly being updated. Um, it's something that we see on a uh, regular basis. So, for example, I'm sure that there must have been quite a few implications for the Ukraine war and sanctions, etc., no? Yes, yes, indeed. No, that, I think, caused havoc on the market from a compliance perspective because Apart from the, the, the direct sanctions that there were on, on Russia and, and Russian individuals and businesses, it led to a lot of extra surveillance by, by companies to make sure that they are not being linked in any kind of way um, or associated to that risk. And that is not always a direct implication. It could be a customer of, of the bank, a customer of the institution who is linked to that. Um, not even an individual, it could be a vessel, it could be an aircraft who is, 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 is leased to the Russian um, uh, sanctioned. So, yes, it became more tired, the, the risk association on, on, on anything that was linked to um, the Russian uh, regime or Russian uh, jurisdiction um, led to changing risks, enhancing the due diligence that needs to be done on any subject which is linked in any kind of way to a vessel, the aircraft or uh, corporate in Russia. So yes, it was quite a, a nightmare for, for, for the market. Of course, when we're talking about due diligence, a lot of people think it's just about finding out about um, the people involved, uh, their boats, etc., as you were saying, but actually it's also about understanding the risks. So explain to me a little bit about how that has worked out, because there must be so many different ways of calculating risk. Is it very subjective? Um, yes and no. So regulations define uh, risk. However, it still leaves a lot of room for interpretation um, of such risk. However, like you rightly said, there are so many different data points um, that one would have to consider 
to assess risk. Because risk is, so there are companies who assess risk from a regulatory perspective and that's it, ticking the box sort of exercise. However, most companies also do it for reputational damage. So there are many, many companies out there who um, use the risk assessment, not only to tick the boxes from a regulatory perspective, but also to ensure that their brand, brand is never tarnished due to an occurrence that goes beyond regulated risk. In fact, we have, um, we have encountered situations with customers where they are not regulated, they do not have to do a risk assessment, However, they conduct risk assessments on their suppliers, their merchants, companies who represent them, just to make sure that their brand is always safeguarded from reputational damage. And when it comes to um, risk assessment, there are so many elements and so many data points. Um, it could be anything the obvious, like you said, knowing the individual, um, the name, the surname, the country of residence, the nationality, um, the issuing state of a passport or multiple passports. But then there is also a lot of other things like source of funds, source of wealth, the way how the money that you're investing in an asset was, was, was in, uh, collected. Um, they also, sometimes they go into ESG risk as well, which is completely different, however, it still can tarnish the brand of the, of the company itself. Then there are data points that are collected from internal systems, like internal blacklists, internal association of a subject from past records, like credit risk. Then there are third parties who provide you with ancillary data on a subject, like if there was adverse media, what type of adverse media was it? Was it a court case? Was it a criminal case? Was it was the person a politically exposed person in the past, still active? In, then there's the, there's so many attributes. There's, for example, company house data, in like the MBR, Malta, where it provides company house data on UBOs and shareholders by the structure. And then understanding if those UBOs are in any way linked into other structures of your company. So it's, it's never-ending. And apart from it being never-ending, it's always changing. Like this, what I mentioned before, in the war in Ukraine, where it added new elements of risk, new aspects of what being asked for. So yes, it's quite a daunting task for, for companies to stay ahead of the game, um, to understand the risk, not only of who they're onboarding, but also of my entire customer base all throughout the relationship with them. Because in fact, that is sometimes when you hear about fines being given to companies of not keeping up uh, with understanding the risk assessment of all their existing subjects. Because it's one thing doing it when you onboard a subject, or I make sure that I'm onboarding a person and I'm not onboarding risk, but it's another huge mammoth task of ensuring that all my existing customers are also not exposing you to risk. And so it's not just a one-off exercise, no, it's something which needs to be done ongoing, on a basis. There's a term which is at the moment very popular in the fintech and rectech space, which is called perpetual KYC, which is the ongoing KYC, where nowadays companies are looking for systems where you're... So the way the companies used to handle ongoing KYC on existing subjects was with periodic reviews. So, for example, if I have a low-risk customer, every two years I check the file to make sure I'm still not exposed to risk. If I have a medium-risk customer, I do it every six months. However, the gap between periodic reviews is a risk on the company because if I did a, a client's review today who's low-risk, tomorrow something might have changed. So, until two years when the periodic review comes, I'm exposed to risk. So, perpetual KYC are systems where they are changing the dynamics where the system alerts you the day you're exposed to risk. You don't have to wait for the periodic review. So that is something that 
companies are looking out for nowadays um, to again reduce the risk exposure. So basically what you're saying is that uh, a lot of companies used to rely on human uh, input. Most still do. And most <laughs> still do, okay. And the idea is that what you offer is for it to be automated, to reduce the human risk. How does it work? It, no, we don't reduce the human... When? So when you have systems who, who focus on streamlining, uh, streamlining the back office, um, systems like ours do not ever eliminate the human element. The human, at the end of it, has to act on an event. What systems like these do is removing the concept of relying on a human to identify risk. So systems like these are there so that if they're constantly assessing everything in real time, all the data points, all the data points from internal systems, from being input by the customer, and data points coming from third parties, where in real time all the data is being collated, assessed and alerting on the risk so the human comes in and acts on it. So, for example, and a typical example is constantly monitoring the third-party databases for credit risk, for PEP exposure, for sanction, adverse media, in transaction monitoring. So, transaction monitoring is something where the subject is a transaction to a jurisdiction which is North Korea, which is sanctioned. A human would pick it up eventually when the report is issued, then they have to go to the report and they identify that. Systems like these alert on this, the, the second that the exposure happens. So then the human has to come in and then conduct the necessary assessment to be able to decide how to act on it. It all sounds uh, extremely complex and I can understand that for a lot of companies they see this as a, as a cost, as a burden. Hmm. What's, what's in it for companies that, as you say, especially ones that are not regulated or licensed, why would they do it? Um, I think when, when the Mandalorian dry exception started getting introduced in the market internationally. Um, it, it was seen as a cost, it's it seen as something that we have to do not to get fined. Um, I think locally, and uh, this is a perception that we're getting from the, from, from the global market that we have, locally it's still seen as a cost, um, uh, as a burden, as something that we have to do, a cost that we have to have in order to tick the boxes and when the FIU comes to um, do the audit, we make sure that we, we pass. Um, however, on a global scale, we're seeing more of a move into increasing efficiencies. They are using tools like these to actually reduce the cost of the entire due diligence uh, department, but also to increase efficiencies in onboarding faster and generating more business. In fact, they're using tools like these to understand how long it's taking us to onboard a low-risk subject from a high-risk subject, which usually is not something that you look into because you want to win business. Um, tools like these are, are help, customers are using tools like these to help them in onboarding faster, the most profitable client at the least risk exposure with the least cost. So it's, it's quite interesting because they, they're using technology which was created to meet regulatory expectations, but to the benefit of creating business efficiencies, commercial efficiencies. Does this make sense for, for small companies? Does it only make sense for large companies? Uh, good question. Um, it depends. So systems like this come, come at cost. Smaller companies, um, usually it's not a cost that, that can sustain. Um, so there needs to be 
um, a level of, of, of commercial viability, obviously, for systems like these to be put in place. However, there are systems on the market where they are offered as a service, um, whereby smaller customers, they don't have to own the whole platform, but ride on um, the service that is being given. Um, but yes, um, the larger the institution, usually the larger the manpower and the compliance teams and the diligence teams. So that is where obviously the return on investment on systems like this comes in more handy from a commercial perspective. From a regulatory perspective, if I have a small customer base and I can maintain it over Excel, over, uh, it is still a nightmare, it's still going to cost me. However, um, Yes, there is a commercial viability question when it comes to smaller and larger institutions. You started off in Malta, is this still your main base? Um, we started off in Malta in 2018, we opened in London. Um, nowadays we sell from both London and Malta. Um, as a base nowadays, I think 92-94% of our customer base is international, um, the rest are, are local. The only reason is that when we opened in London, we started targeting a wider audience, and nowadays we sell to 22 countries in five different continents. Okay, <laughs> and don't drop any names, but I presume that you've got also some large customers. So yes, we do. The we risks are... associated with their operations must be huge. Yes, yes, we do have tier one and tier two financial institutions and banks, and some of which are across the globe. Then we have clients in, in fund services and asset and wealth management again operating in one of them operates in 46 different jurisdictions. Um, we service different industries, so we service uh, from banking to asset management, financial services, crypto, gaming, um, legal sometimes. However, we also see customers or have customers who are not regulated. Um, and this ties down to what we were saying before, that companies are using this tool for reputation and damage. Yes, which is something which is very difficult to assess, but it's huge yes. for these publicly listed companies, for example. Correct, in fact. Companies who, for example, want to make sure that their suppliers and operators are not exposing them to risk. So even though they're not regulated, they have a full due diligence process, not only at onboarding a new supplier, but also maintaining the relationship and ensuring that the supplier is, is not exposing them to risk in any kind of way. And this is where um, some customers also added ESG. Um, risk to uh, supplier relationships. We have clients in gaming who added responsible gaming risk, which is different from the regulated risk. I'm going to ask you a really naive question as my last question. Are we winning the battle against AML? The world has become so complex. Mm. Um, is, is it ever going to be enough? What, what the people who want to stay on the right side of the law is it ever going to be enough, what they do? I don't think so. <laughs> it depends for whom. So winning the battle from against the people who want to loan the money, we're far off. Reason being is money launderers are very clever in finding ways and means to, to go around um, current measures, um, especially when there are policies in place. So a money launderer, if an, a money laundering regime um, sets a money laundering policy, they have a document that helps them in finding alternate ways how to run the money, um, which doesn't fall part of the policy, which companies are not seeking for. So it helps them actually finding new ways to run the money. Um, however, for, for the institutions who are using such technology to, um, to their benefit, I think, yes, um, they are um, winning the battle. It depends what winning the battle means, however, because there are companies who implement these processes um, to tick the boxes and are still ready to onboard risk. 
because after all they're a business and their policy is let's stick the boxes of regulation we're all in line we're not going to be fined but i don't care i want to onboard as much business as possible and then there are companies within the same industry who say no listen, i don't care about business my uh, full focus is brand reputation and go the extra mile not to onboard one another so it's a very difficult question to answer um, but i think we are on the right track making it harder for them anyway <laughs> yes so. definitely Christoph, thank you very much welcome that's all for today Subscribe now to the FinTalks and follow Finance Malta on all social media platforms to stay updated with all our activities. Till the next podcast.